Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both to them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also member of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself at this chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Galatians 2, 11 through 21. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in my 20s, uh, I founded and led a youth ministry in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, serving first-generation immigrant families that were living beneath the poverty line. And it was so humbling and so thrilling. 
I fell in love with those families. And honestly, I, I thought it's what I would still be doing now, but God had some other plans. And Oseus is one of the kids that I got especially close to during those years. His backstory is a really tragic one. He's born one of six to a single mother who had a drug habit that she just could not kick. And so eventually the system stepped in. And when I met him, he was being passed around various foster homes. He had had recent play placements in the Bronx, in Queens, and in Brooklyn. He lived through a stretch where he was actually houseless as a ninth grader sleeping on a church altar that allowed him to crash there during the night. And then this one summer, uh, I took him and these other two guys on a hiking trip upstate. These were three young men that I was mentoring, and my folks lived in a condo in the Hudson Valley, and it was going to sit empty that weekend. And so I had this idea. I went to the Army-Navy surplus store in Times Square, and I got three sets of dog tags made, one with their first name on it and the, the second with a, a verse of scripture that I thought was defining of their true self, of, of their real identity. It was a touch cheesy, but it was deeply sincere. And after that day hiking, we were sitting in the living room together, and I looked each of them in the eye, and I said, this is who you are. I believe in you. And this is who you are. And I'll never forget handing Oseas this necklace because he wept as I described the true character that I saw in him. And as I handed him this necklace, he had tears streaming down his face and a broad smile across the same face. I wonder how long it had been uh, since he had felt known by an adult, like uh, safe enough to let his guard down and known enough to really receive affirmation. I, when I think back to that night, sometimes I wonder if that's the first time he felt at home in his own life since his life had become a government issue. And there was this clubhouse with a pool table that was shared by all the residents in that condo neighborhood. And I'd been to that clubhouse plenty of times, so I knew that there was a pool table there. And so we decided to wrap up this unforgettable day uh, by playing a couple games of pool. So we walk there and we begin playing our first game of pool and we're just a couple of shots into the game when BAM! The front door of that clubhouse slams against the wall. And these two older men that I recognized as neighbors of my folks started screaming right in the face of Oseas. He happened to be standing closest to the door and they're just berating him. So as quickly as I could, I stepped in. I said, whoa, 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 we are, uh, we are here rightfully. I am the responsible adult who's here with these boys. I know you, you know my parents. Here's the key fob that we used to enter the clubhouse. I've been here plenty of and they just couldn't be reasoned with. These two clean-cut, older white men were absolutely convinced that these three rough-around-the-edges young men of color were breaking into the clubhouse of their neighborhood. And as they forced us to leave and we walked back, Oseas' eyes filled with tears again. And he said, Tyler, it's because I'm black. They thought I broke in because I'm black. And I knew exactly what had just happened. All the dignity that was given to him in the form of a necklace had been snatched right off his neck within an hour by the voice of an accuser 
So that's the scene. Here's the question. Does what just happened on the way here, the necklace, relate to what just happened in here, the accusation? Are those two related? Uh, Like, do we just move on? Or does Jesus have something to say to Oseas as he's being stripped of his dignity? Uh, and to the man doing the accusing, and to me, caught somewhere in the middle between the two. Uh, does God speak out on issues of ethnicity, supremacy, superiority, and racism, or are those mostly modern American political topics outside of his purview? Does what happened on the way here relate to what just happened in here? That's the big question for today. Because if we are going to set for our vision as a people a house of prayer for all nations, at some point we're going to have to get to those last three words, for all nations. And that's exactly what today is all about. And I want you to know I'm not here to directly comment on political conversations. This is not about CRT or BLM or anyone's agenda. Actually, it's exactly about someone's agenda. It was Jesus's agenda. And so I want to remove any roadblocks I can from anyone's imagination right up front by naming that I very intentionally titled this teaching Biblical Reconciliation. And that's because all our aim today is to allow the Scriptures to speak, to allow Jesus to set His agenda for His people and then to follow Him. So we've got two pretty dense and I honestly think quite fun passages to unpack together. And so let's just dive right into the first one. Yes? All right. Here we go. For he himself is our peace, who's made the two groups one. Now, the two groups here are Jew and Gentile. They're people of different uh, ethnicities and cultures who, generally speaking, strongly dislike each other because of a whole bunch of micro and definitely macro racism on both sides. So Paul is going there. He, in the Bible, is talking about race and culture for people who are occupying the same city who come from vastly different histories. He's talking about systemic issues, generational issues, global issues. He is dragging up not just the sins of an individual person, uh, but the systemic sins of his society. And the grammar he uses here is quite important. It's not only that Jesus preached peace or modeled peace or even that he made a way for us to have peace, he became peace. Abraham Lincoln says peace is not merely a concept, nor even a state of affairs. It is bound up with a person. This is who God is. He is our peace. And the Hebrew understanding of the word peace is called shalom, and it's a whole lot more like we might use the word wholeness these days. It means personal wholeness, like physical, emotional, and spiritual flourishing. But it equally means societal wholeness, harmony, liberty, equality, respect. My neighbor's problem is my problem, and my neighbor's joy is my joy. That's shalom. And to be joined to God is to live at peace across every race, class, status, every dividing line in our society. The first six words of this passage mean reconciliation is not an optional expression for Christians of a certain socio-political persuasion. It is central to the gospel. 
And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and with its commandments and regulations. Now, the dividing wall that's being referenced here isn't figurative. It is a direct reference to the temple structure that both the Jews and the Gentiles had their spirituality formed within. Let's take a look at that very temple. So, so this big outer courtyard that is inside the temple front door, but outside where all of the worship and preaching actually happened, that was called the court of the Gentiles. Because if you're not of the chosen race, your worship ends here. If you weren't a Jew, that's as close as you're coming to the action, to the presence of God. In fact, in the late 1800s, archaeologists discovered a temple pillar with an inscription threatening execution if a non-Jew were to pass the dividing wall. Gentiles, you're welcome into the family of God. Come in and join us and worship with us. But just in case you get yourself confused with us, Please take your seat in the nosebleed section. Now, I need to say something important. It's really important that there's a number of rich, biblical, theological reasons that the temple structure was set up this way. All of them are in the Mosaic Law. That's an entire other sermon. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus established a new covenant, one that fulfilled the Mosaic Law. And I think new might be a slightly misleading word to us because Jesus wasn't actually doing anything new. What he was doing is he was, he was giving a more full expression to the oldest covenant love, to what we see on the first pages of Scripture, to the unbroken, vertical, and horizontal unity of Eden. So there was a temple structure that got us part of the way there. Uh, and, and, but there, through Jesus, was then the destroying of two barriers, to the barrier in the Holy of Holies that existed between people and God and the dividing wall of hostility that separated Jew from Gentile. One temple structure got us a big step, but there's a new temple structure that gets us a giant step closer. But by the time Paul is writing Ephesians, some were holding on to the old way. They were keeping up the very barriers that Jesus has destroyed. The biblical claim in Ephesians chapter 2 is this. Jesus destroyed that barrier, the dividing wall, making the two groups one. The very temple that first was uniting to all nations had actually become racially divisive. That's the issue. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. In the second century writings of Clement of Alexandria, the church is actually referred to as the third race or the new race. That is how literally the early church took this teaching. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So the dividing wall, that's a physical concrete barrier. It was that personal. To destroy a barrier that personal, God became personal. He, he got physical. This is a flesh and blood problem, and so God offers a flesh and blood solution. His name is Jesus. And the English phrase to reconcile is a single Greek verb that's only found one other place in the whole of the Bible outside of Ephesians chapter 2, and that is when the Apostle Paul writes of heaven and earth being reconciled. So Scripture speaks identically of heaven and earth coming together and of Jew and Gentile coming together. This is it. This is an essential part of it. Restored unity between peoples is hard evidence of heaven coming to earth. So yes, Jesus has something to say about slavery and colonization, about racism and supremacy, about systemic oppression and equity, and about friendship and family. 
Reconciliation across ethnic, socioeconomic, and cultural lines isn't a peripheral part of the gospel for woke churches. It is central to the very heart of the story. So I'm looking at Osaeus with a wall of tears building up behind his eyes for the second time tonight. The first when dignity was given by an advocate, the second when dignity was taken by an accuser. Does what happened on the way here have anything to do with what just happened in here? Yes. But as always, God doesn't offer an explanation or issue a press release. He tells an alternative story. Here is the short version. The story of reconciliation begins with the simple phrase, imago Dei. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, says Genesis 1. So human beings are set apart from all the rest of creation as image bearers. But if we turn the page to Genesis 3, the Imago Dei runs right into the fall. That divine image placed within people was not taken by sin, but it was distorted by sin. Sin rips a divide between us and God, who suddenly goes from ever-present uh, comfort to distant, hard to know, and even harder to learn to trust. And you and I go from inseparable family to separate individuals. Insecurity, suspicion, blame, and division push people apart. Sin has vertical consequences between me and God and horizontal consequences between me and you. The activist and author Lisa Sharon Harper sums it up this way. Humanity's broken relationship with God is the ultimate cause of all other brokenness. Creation is bound together by relationship with our creator since it is creator God's love that binds us together. To break one tie is to break them all. Vertical and horizontal consequences. Hang on to that part. It's important. Our redemption begins as humbly and as personally as creation did with a single couple, Abram and Sarai. An elderly couple who are unable to have children are then promised a child, and this child is going to grow that family into an entire nation, Israel. But, and this is so, so key to the whole story, in both Genesis 12 and 22, when God makes this lavish promise to Abraham, he also lets him in on his ultimate plan. I'm blessing you to become a blessing to all nations. So from the very beginning, we're talking about Genesis here, God's plan has been reconciliation. A world that's divided by warfare, by fear of the other, by enslavement, by superiority, and by racism will be reconciled by one unified and unifying family. You see, in the ancient world, every nation had their own god or gods. Right? There was the uh, Egyptian gods, the Babylonian gods, the Greek gods. The distinguishing claim of the Israelite nation was this. Yahweh is the one true God, the God of all nations. And that subversive and, to be honest, offensive claim that Israel made was that God is the unifying and true God that will bring all nations under his authority. Cue Isaiah chapter 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. These, wait, who? Who are these? The foreigner, the descendant of another nation, of another ethnicity, of another culture who acknowledges Yahweh as the true God. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
And of course, as anyone who has ever championed the value of multi-ethnic diversity knows, to get a vision that beautiful and that idealistic lived, it requires a whole lot more than a bunch of well-meaning people with good intentions agreeing. It requires sacrifice. Jesus. Jesus was born quietly and humbly to a peasant couple in a rural town, but there was this one moment when heaven just couldn't stand it. When heaven just broke out like a kid or a toddler that you're playing hide and seek with and you get close to them and they just can't handle it anymore. Heaven breaks out in this, in this declaration. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Israelite king who's come to sit on the throne, and he's the sacrificial lamb who's come to lay down his life to repair the vertical and horizontal consequences that sin has left us with. And that makes this more than just good news for a people, but good news for all people. Jesus drove this point home in his teaching by depicting Samaritans, uh, the ethnic group that Jews commonly look down their noses at, as the holy heroes in multiple parables. He once said of a Gentile centurion, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. And he both forgave and healed a Samaritan and then a Syrophoenician woman outside of the temple with no sacrifice offered at all. Doesn't he know the rules? Jesus is breaking all the rules. Jesus is actually talking reconciliation all the time in, in the time and place that he lived within in ways that are mostly lost on us as people reading his teachings in a completely different culture some 2,000 years later. Let me just give you one example, show you one example of this in Luke chapter 10. Familiar passage. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He, meaning Jesus, replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus is saying, don't get so excited about God's power through you. Get more excited about God's love given to you. That's what he's saying, right? That is what he's saying. But it's not all that he's saying. So check this out. This is honestly so cool. Jesus is an intellectual giant. This guy is a sage. Only me and Tim are excited. I can see excitement on Tim's face. All the rest of your eyes are glazing over. Check this out. When Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 14 to a group of folks who grew up memorizing Isaiah the way you and I grew up memorizing multiplication tables. Uh, only in Isaiah, this passage is not about the fall of Satan, it's about the fall of Babylon, about the nation that is actively and systemically oppressing Israel at that time. That leaves us with an important question. Is Jesus, in Luke chapter 10, is he talking about Satan or about Babylon? Right? Is he talking about an actual nation that's inflicting ethnicity-based oppression, or is he talking about a demonic enemy that's inflicting spiritual oppression? Is he talking about a spiritual power or a socioeconomic power here? Yes. <laughs> you see, Babylon tried demonstrably to culturally assimilate the Jewish people. They refused to call Daniel and his buddies by their Hebrew names given to them by their parents and instead gave them Babylonian names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
They made them eat the food from their own table. They forced them to adopt their cultural norms. They outlawed the Hebrew prayer practices. Jesus is naming Satan as the animating force behind Babylon's captivity and oppression of Israel. Biblically, when a nation or people group or a community forces cultural assimilation, uniformity, instead of cultural celebration, unity through diversity, it is not linked to our redeemer, but to our deceiver. You see, reconciliation is woven into the life and teachings of Jesus in a few ways that we see, in all sorts of ways that we struggle to see. And after his sacrificial death and resurrection, the church is born at Pentecost, when the gospel, a term literally meaning good news, is heard by a wildly diverse crowd, all in their own languages. Good news for all people. The message of heaven at Jesus' birth in Luke 2 is then fulfilled when the Spirit is given to God's people in Acts 2. And notice that the crowd doesn't say, how on earth are we all hearing this in Aramaic? We don't even speak that. They're saying, how are we hearing this in our own native language? This is not a miracle of uniformity. It's a miracle of diversity. It is not assimilation. It is celebration. Philip Yancey sums up the remainder of early church history like this. The earliest Christians broke down barriers. Unlike most other religions, Christians welcomed men and women alike. The Greeks excluded slaves from most social groupings while Christians included them. The Jewish temple separated worshipers by race and gender. Christians brought them together around the Lord's table. In contrast to Rome's mostly male aristocracy, the Christian church let women and the poor take leadership roles. By forming community out of diverse members, we have the opportunity to capture the attention of the world and even the supernatural world beyond. How on earth do you explain a unified community, the likes of which the world has never seen before in such a divided world? For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, you see, resurrection means that the temple curtain's been torn from top to bottom. God is no longer confined to a building. He is indwelling the very being of his people. And resurrection means the dividing wall is destroyed. Every line that divides us is now erased. Every wall has been torn down. We are one family with one Savior. Sin has vertical and horizontal consequences. Divided from God, divided from one another. Ephesians is, is a letter. It is one train of thought. It was later chopped up into chapters and verses. So we're used to taking it in in pieces. But it was written to be read as one coherent whole to a community. And Ephesians 1 is all about the grace of God that restores our connection to him closing every inch of separation and in the very same breath emerges Ephesians chapter 2 that the very same grace that closed separation between us and God closed separation between Jew and Gentile between white and black between rich and poor between native and immigrant between victim of systemic socioeconomic and ethnicity based oppression and beneficiary of the exact same system how on earth do you untangle a web that complex? We are not given an explanation. We're given a person. He himself is our peace. Jesus was broken so that we could be made whole. 
Reconciliation is not a hot topic that we can search out a biblical perspective on if we try really hard. Reconciliation is central to the gospel. To follow Jesus is to practice reconciliation across the lines of racial difference. He doesn't make that part optional because it isn't. There is an unbreakable connection between the vertical nature of the gospel and the horizontal nature of the gospel. In Portland as it is in heaven, essentially includes a diverse reconciled people whose life together makes no sense apart from this story. And it's a story that we're living in right now and it is an unstoppable train that will keep moving forward until after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, says Revelation 7. So when heaven and earth are fully restored as one, we won't be married or given in marriage. There won't be a temple because God himself will be our temple and we will appear in everlasting resurrected form and diversity will last for eternity. Isn't that interesting? That the biblical vision of heaven includes from every nation, tribe, people, and language. We're talking about distinct peoples, distinct cultures, and distinct languages still visibly represented in heaven. I'll still be white, she'll still be black, you'll still be Korean, and they'll still be, you know, whoever will still be, be Dominican. Uh, God is not doing away with color and culture. He is dignifying it. He is uniting it in a celebration of our uniqueness because God looks at every shade and says, Imago Dei. Because it's good. It is a reflection of who he is. And this is why one culture on its own can never be the fullest reflection of who he is, but only when the collective comes together to form one new humanity. Ethnic identity, my friends, is not a consequence of the fall. It's a part of the image of God. And the church is not a place of ethnic assimilation. It is a place of ethnic celebration. So celebrate that God is this good and the story is this true and this train cannot be stopped. Jesus himself said, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Gates. What imagery? That's temple dividing imagery. Jesus says, what I have torn down, no one can rebuild. Well, then what about this? This photo was taken in 1922 in Portland, Oregon. That is 100 years ago here in our home, in our city. So if everything we've been saying is true and the dividing wall is torn down, would you explain that, please? I mean, if Jesus destroyed the dividing wall, then how could certain branches of the church use scripture to defend the apartheid regime in South Africa and Nazi Germany and American slavery? Do you have any idea how many church buildings in this country were built on the backs of enslaved peoples? What sort of theological gymnastics must white pastors in the American South have had to do in order to buddy up with the KKK? I mean, the church building that we sit in on Sundays, as I understand it, was constructed in a historically redlined part of our city. 
What that means is that people of color were systemically prevented from home ownership in the very corner of the city where we pray kingdom come. And thank God that that is a past tense statement and we continue to work through some of the present day ramifications that that sort of history leaves around in a city. If Jesus makes reconciliation a gospel issue, how'd the family bearing his name become? Jesus saves as long as you look like me. Jesus saves along the lines of race, class, and culture. And of course, look, I'm talking about some of the church, not all of the church, but I am talking about some of our church history as followers of Jesus. So how on earth did we get from Jesus to there? Because for some of us, that'll be a history that you're disgusted by, and for others it will be a trigger because you're so aware of the waters that you're still swimming in due to that history. And for most, we probably don't realize the degree to which a history like that continues to inform our present. And it's that that takes us from our first reading in Ephesians to our second reading in Galatians. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Now that is the key phrase. Everything builds and builds to that piercing statement, and the response today hangs on our willingness to be pierced by that statement anew. So are you ready? Okay, here, here we go again. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. All right, let me catch you up. Jesus tore down the dividing wall. It took a while for everyone to catch up, but eventually they got there. And in the early church, there's a steady stream of the broadening and broadening of the net that catches the people of God until the biggest moment finally occurs when Cephas or as he's more commonly called, Peter. It's the same name, just in different languages. When Peter is given a vision in prayer. He then goes to a Gentile's house, which even at that point in early church history was thought to contaminate one's spirituality. And he sees the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles in the same way that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Jews. It's at this point that his mind is blown uh, about the, the real breadth of the family of God. And he holds a meeting, a roundtable meeting with all of the early church leaders. And Peter leads a movement of ethnic awakening in the early church. All of that's in Acts chapters 10 and 11. He is Mr. Diversity. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those belonging to the circumcision group. So later, apparently, some of those same Jews celebrating diversity ran into the discomfort that diversity will present the, all of us with, and they were unwilling to bend. I mean, they started out eating with Gentiles, but what on earth are you supposed to do if you've been living kosher for generations and now someone's offering you a pork chop at the church potluck, but pork is the cheapest meat in the market and maybe the only kind that can be afforded by certain people groups in the city? Or what about circumcision? I mean, Moses gave that to us a long time ago and it's really important to us. So are we supposed to start asking grown men to go under the knife? And then there's even just culture and custom. I mean, the, the Hebrew tradition was high church. The, these people memorized the Psalms. They knew how to do the holidays. They had a well-ordered way of gathering. But now the Gentiles are here, and they're sitting in all the wrong sections, and they're talking at all the wrong times, and they're celebrating differently than we do. So at some point, those same Jews retreated back into their comfort zone. They retreated back into the Mosaic law they knew instead of the new covenant Jesus was inviting them into. Do you remember this 
diagram? If Jesus can only disciple you within your comfort zone, Jesus can't disciple you. Comfort zone is what's given us the church we actually have, not the one Jesus left us with. So here's the big idea in our second passage. Jesus tore down the dividing wall. Peter led in the diversity, but now he's rebuilding the very wall that he helped destroy. And here's how Paul, the writer of this letter, builds his case. He, meaning Peter, used to eat with Gentiles. Now in the Hebrew world, there was nothing more socially significant than who you ate with. Sharing a table was the ultimate expression of acceptance and affirmation. And Peter used to eat with Gentiles until certain men came from James. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He's a big deal. Peter cares what he thinks. And so he shrunk back and he played the part. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. One person's lax, passive attitude toward including the outsider spreads through the whole community until Peter and Barnabas, two of the most visible church leaders, would go to a church meal and then they would carry their plate to sit among their sect. You see, a warning sign for any church is when theory outruns expression. See, when we have compelling ideas but nominal lives, we get homogenous communities. When your theory or your theology outruns your expression, your actual life. Paul calls it hypocrisy in Galatians 2. And he says this goes all the way up to the top, to Peter. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. There it is. Paul here is referring to the Mosaic law, but of course part of that law was the dividing wall that Jesus destroyed. So back to the temple architecture for a moment. Remember this, the court of the Gentiles, the horizontal effect of the gospel, Jesus destroyed the barrier. He destroyed that barrier. And then Paul is confronting Peter for rebuilding what Jesus destroyed. Every time you carry your kosher plate to the Jewish table, Every time you schmooze it up with the other church leaders while the Gentile outsider awkwardly waits for the church service to start, every time you choose your own comfort zone at the expense of the other, you are laying brick and mortar, rebuilding what Jesus tore down. Jews welcomed the Gentiles in. The gate was kicked down. The dividing wall was destroyed. But then that barrier goes on living and standing invisibly. Something like a civil rights movement that changed a whole bunch of laws but much fewer hearts so that oppression and injustice is left around and the people, structures and institutions on the other side of those new laws. It's freedom that feels strangely like oppression. Peter's got one foot in the kingdom and he's got one foot in a broken system. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. See, my friends, any honest, humble assessment of the church in our day must include what Jesus tore down. We rebuilt. And I don't just mean that in relation to our history. I'm talking about the present state of the American church. Sociologists define multi-ethnic churches by this very generous principle called the 80-20 rule, meaning that if, any, if less than 80% of your church is made up of any one ethnic group, then you are defined as multi-ethnic. 
So for instance, if you've got 100 people in your church and 81 of them are Korean and 19 of them are Hispanic, your church is not multi-ethnic. But if you've got 100 people in your church and 79 of them are white and 21 of them are made up of a collection of other races, you are multi-ethnic. That's pretty generous, wouldn't you say? So, so to borrow some scholarship from Dr. Brian Loritz, if you apply the, that benchmark to all worshiping communities all across the U.S., how many of them are multi-ethnic? Now, we're talking all worshiping communities here, Christian churches, Muslim mosques, Buddhist temples, all worshiping communities. Only 7.5% are multi-ethnic. Yeah, man, but maybe those numbers are skewed because some of those communities tend to stay within their immigrant groups, particularly in the first generation in a new place. And some of the religions you just named are actually built around culture and ethnicity to some degree or another, or at least associated that way. But Jesus clearly and directly made racial reconciliation a gospel issue. So if you restrict it just to the Christian churches in the U.S., what does it look like? And the number drops to 2.5%. 2.5% of the churches in our nation today are multi-ethnic by an unbelievably generous standard. What Jesus tore down, we rebuilt. In the late 1700s in Philadelphia, a man named Richard Allen and a few friends had the audacity to pray in the whites-only section of their local church. A few church members picked them up off their knees as they prayed and shoved them down the church steps outside. It was after that that the black community in that city left the church. They were so tired of being segregated to the modern-day court of the Gentiles, and they bought a blacksmith shop and began to hold their services there, and that is the beginning of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or the AME, which is the oldest historically black Protestant church in America. It sparked a series of black denominations all across this country running squarely into the very dividing wall that Jesus had torn down. Pastor Eric Mason says of the church in the U.S., the black church only exists because the white church failed to be the church. See, when I read Martin Luther King's classic letters from a Birmingham jail, the part that so rocked me was his disappointment with white Christian pastors. He's sitting in a jail cell over a gospel issue, and he feels completely forgotten and utterly alone. And I was so rocked by it because he was not condemning the white pastors of his time as white supremacists or because they invited members of the KKK into church leadership or anything overtly racist like that. His disappointment was so much more subtle. It was who they ate with at the church potluck and how they gave leadership away and who could access it and what aspects of the gospel they emphasized and which they de-emphasized and what they were willing to sacrifice for and what they apparently weren't. See, this dividing wall, it's much bigger than just a white and black thing. It's a native and immigrant thing. It's a power by gender thing. It's a division of every kind sort of thing. And some of you undoubtedly, you've got to be thinking, this guy's overdoing it. He's making such a big deal about a bunch of ancient history. Just give this time, man, and it's going to sort itself out naturally. The dividing wall that we're talking about was not built naturally. It was built very intentionally by a whole lot of unnatural intention, and it only comes down with just as much unnatural intention. Jesus destroyed the barrier. That part is done. It cannot be changed. New reality. But the visible expression of that reality, it has to come from your life and mine. 
His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. The kingdom of God has invaded the world, but that kingdom becomes visible through the church. And this word new in Ephesians, it's an interesting one because there's two different Greek words for the word new. There's neos, which means new in relation to time, and there's kainos, which means new in relation to kind. And Paul uses kainos. So, for example, the iPhone 14 is, is neos. It's new in relation to time. It's a new version of an existing thing. But when Alexander Graham Bell placed the first phone call, it was kainos. It was new in relation to kind. It was a whole new kind of communication. Again, to borrow from my friend Brian Loretz, this new humanity, it's not a 2022 Tesla. It's the Model T. It's not a brand new Boeing jet. It is the Wright Brothers on the beach in North Carolina. When your jet pulls up to the jetway, you tend to think, thank God, maybe we'll finally get to take off on time for once. When the Wright brothers got airborne on that beach in North Carolina, it was mind-blowing. People are flying? It was kainos. Jesus destroyed the barrier so that people of different races, classes, and cultures and backgrounds could worship the one true God as one true family. And when the watching world catches a glimpse of this, says Paul, it's kainos. It is mind blown. The church is God's plan for showing the world a new kind of family, the one with no dividing wall. We didn't destroy the barrier. Jesus did that. But we can become the visible evidence of Jesus' victory. Heaven invading earth, it happens because Jesus won a decisive victory that you and I could never win. But the world catches a glimpse of that victory when we become the living evidence of that victory. The multi-ethnic church is mind-blowing. It's a completely new kind. The homogenous church is neos. It's just more of the same. So as I mull over my responsibility as a white Christian pastor in a nation with a history of race-based slavery during a particular time where there's heightened awareness around racism and injustice in our country. I just keep on picturing Dr. King in that prison cell, the legal pad in his hand, scratching out that letter that they end up publishing. And I ask myself, am I one of those white Christian pastors? I mean, don't get me wrong. I abhor racism. It is disgusting in any and every variety, but does that move me to act? Or do I just scan comments, make a virtue signaling Instagram post, and then begin concocting weekend plans with a friend group that mostly looks like me, thinks like me, and has access to all the same things that I do? Because the sobering truth revealed in Galatians 2 is that Peter rebuilt the dividing wall that he opposed not by blatant, obvious racism, but just by passively living within the confines of his comfort zone. And the sobering truth for us, and I'm speaking primarily to the, to the ethnic and socioeconomic majority here, the sobering truth for us is that we can nod our heads in agreement, we can champion all the right stances, we can celebrate God's vision of a multi-ethnic family, but if our expression of that vision is passive, we're rebuilding the wall that Jesus tore down. So when is the last time that you went out of your way to notice someone different from you and then inconvenienced yourself to invite them deeper into community? 
or the last time your after church lunch or dinner plans intentionally included someone different from you, or the last time your weekend intentionally included someone who didn't make the weekend a bit more chill, but, but might have made it a bit more uncomfortable in the name of living a picture of the gospel. And I'm not asking those questions to accuse anybody. I'm just asking them because they seem really similar to the rhetorical questions that Paul is posing to Peter at the church potluck. The sobering truth of Galatians 2 is this, that our church will never be more inclusive than your dinner table. The work of reconciliation in the early church didn't happen in their gathered worship. Paul is not asking for more diverse music or for better statistics on the church survey. I mean, I'm sure he's down with all of that, but he's talking about our dinner tables. Reconciliation happens at the table. It is not enough to have a more colorful crowd of faces on Sundays. The appearance of diversity is not reconciliation. A more colorful crowd around a stage is the appearance of reconciliation. But unless this gets to the table, to your table and mine, we are rebuilding what Jesus tore down. So our practice for this week isn't new. It should be old news. Prayer hubs have one final Tuesday morning, this Tuesday morning, where we will gather at various locations at various times all across Portland, standing on the ground of historic places of injustice in our city, praying kingdom come. And as a reminder, each of those prayer hubs was chosen, or the locations were chosen very intentionally at a nerve center of injustice in our city. A number of those uh, around our, the racial divisions in our city's history. If you've not read up on those locations, you can do so at bridgetown.church justice. And you're invited to, to embody this just by gathering with us this Tuesday morning. And I want you to know, Bridgetown Church, that in the last couple of years, we have become increasingly multi-ethnic as a church body. And that's worth celebrating. And so what I want you to hear me say today is, well done. And let's keep going. All the way until we become a Kainos people. I absolutely delight in you, family. I love getting to be your pastor. I'm having the time of my life. Every time someone says, hey man, how's it going in Portland from elsewhere? I say, I'm having so much fun. I found these people who are as crazy in all the same ways as I am and they want all this stuff just as bad as I do. I'm having the time of my life. And so what I want you to hear me say is, the journey has been a joy. And let's keep going. All the way until we become a Kainos people. So here's, here's the tension that we live within as a church, and it's where I want to land today. We are called to become the remedy, but we're riddled with the disease. We've been entrusted with a message, the one and only message to heal the divisions in our world. We know the prescription, and yet we're sick ourselves. We're called to become the remedy, but we're riddled with the disease. And so here's where we have to start with repentance, lament, and hope. Just a word on each. First, repentance. For some, there was some moment in today's teaching when the Spirit just tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, do you see this? Could we just talk more about this? And, and that's an invitation because repentance is God's method for renewing the world. 
You are called to become the remedy, but you, every last one of you, no matter where you find yourself in today's story, are riddled with the disease. So do you want to become a Kainos church? Then repent. And repentance is going to look very different for the majority and the minority culture. Like, an Asian American probably doesn't need to repent of white supremacy, but that very same person might need to repent of judgment or apathy or unforgiveness. So this is going to look different based on who you are and the story that you bring in with you. Uh, for some, uh, it may be need to repent of passive complicity because you've realized at some point in today's teaching, oh, I'm, I'm Cephas, and I'm so sorry. But for others, you might need to repent because you've turned people into the enemy, racist ancestors into the enemy, or policymakers of the past into the enemy, or people of power into the enemy, or people of the majority culture into the enemy. But remember when Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he was revealing Satan as the animating force behind unjust systems. And when Paul finishes this coherent train of thought in Ephesians 6, he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. So maybe some need to repent because you've traded a spiritual enemy for a flesh and blood enemy. And repentance is going to look different for each of us, but repentance is for all of us. And repentance is both asking for forgiveness and it's a turning and going the other way. It is a redirecting of our steps toward the most redemptive destination. And then there's lament. Lament is the practice of communal repentance. See, we can't just repent solo for our own personal mess. We also have to repent together for our communal mess, the, the one that we've made and the one that we've just inherited. And lament is all over the pages of the Bible. About 40% of the Psalms are about suffering and oppression. They're lament songs and prayers. Lament is all over the Bible, but it's almost completely absent in the modern church. And why does that matter? I mean, who really wants to sing about suffering and oppression anyway? It matters because lament personalizes injustice. And we can't actually do the work of justice and mercy if injustice has no name and mercy has no face. That's why this matters. You see, we have to lament the gap between the dividing wall that Jesus destroyed and the invisible but very real barriers that go on living, not just within the church at large, but within this church in ways that you may see. Because until justice gets personal, it's not the justice of Jesus. And the uh, scholar Sung Chan Ra, he points out that biblically there's two different kinds of laments. There's eulogies and hospital visits. So, so eulogies are the words spoken at a funeral. And so eulogies are words spoken in lament that have no hope this side of eternity. They're just putting grief into its proper context. And that's mostly what you find in the book of Jeremiah or the book of Lamentations. But then there's a hospital visit, which is grief with hope, because there's a possibility of healing. It, it would be so inappropriate if I were to go and visit a suffering friend in the hospital and begin reading a eulogy in the room, right? Because there, there's still hope of healing in this place. And these, uh, this lament with hope is mostly what you find in the Psalms. And I just want to say that every one of our laments when it comes to reconciliation is a hospital visit. Now, I lament the state of the church when it comes to ethnic reconciliation, but it's a lament with hope because there's a possibility of healing. And that brings us to hope. See, there tends to live, especially within mostly young churches like this one, the, this unchecked assumption that we are close to seeing the kingdom come. Like if we just pull this thing together, plug a few more holes, we can get this thing done. But the difference between Jesus and the modern day activist is how they assess the damage. 
I mean, everyone believes something is wrong with the world, absolutely everyone. Some just believe that the world's been an offender bender and can be repaired cosmetically, while others, or while Jesus claims that the world's been totaled, this thing is flawed to the core. And if it's flawed to the core, if it's totaled, you don't need repair, you need renewal. See, I'm making all things new. Repentance is, Jesus, don't forget about me, make me new. Lament is, Jesus, don't forget about us, make us new. And hope is the certainty that his response is always, oh, I thought you'd never ask. We're called to become the remedy, but we're riddled with the disease. We want to live without a dividing wall, but while I'm tearing it down with my right hand, I'm rebuilding it with my left. Repentance and lament, that is how God renews the world. His power is made perfect. It's made noticeable, made visible, made powerful, made real in my weakness. Activism will not save the world. Grace will. So Jesus, make me new. Jesus, make us new. I thought you'd never ask.